for-profit startup recently launched what it calls an alternative to traditional college that takes only a year to complete, is advised closely by big-name employers, and that costs nothing at first, though students have to later pay back a portion of their incomes. What's missing are the kind of liberal arts courses and general ed curriculum that so many people are, are accustomed to with college. It's called Mission U, and their reaction to it has been real mixed and passionate. Some academics have trashed it as a kind of employment service passing itself off as education, while others have praised it for trying to shake up the higher education system as we know it. Hi, I'm Jeff Young, and for this week's Ed Surge On Air podcast, we decided to try something different. We put together a virtual panel discussion inviting people with a variety of views on Mission U to face off, including its founder and a critic. Our hope was to start a dialogue and get beyond misperceptions on both sides. That means the episode's a bit longer than usual, but it gets pretty lively, and we hope you'll listen through to the end. We'll have that conversation right after this. This episode of the Ed Surge On Air podcast is brought to you by the Ed Surge Next newsletter. Get the latest news and views about higher education technology each week. Sign up for the Ed Surge Next newsletter. Just visit edsurge.com and click on subscribe. All right. We're on Skype with a panel of guests to talk about alternative higher ed models. And we have four guests. Um, I'm going to first quickly go around and introduce each one here. Um, first of all, we have Adam Braun, an entrepreneur and, and philanthropist who just opened Mission U. Uh, Mission U is a, a for-profit that offers a one-year program it's intended as a, that's intended as a replacement for the traditional four-year college experience, potentially. Uh, thanks for being here, Adam. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Next is Brian Alexander. He is a consultant and futurist and a very close watcher of higher ed trends. And in fact, you should check out his weekly Future Trends Forum video chat. Thanks for joining us, Brian. Delighted to be here. And also Gardner Campbell is here, an associate professor of English at Virginia Commonwealth University, who's been active for many years experimenting with new formats of teaching with technology and thinking about how to teach better at colleges. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Jeff. Looking forward to it. And last but not least, uh, Marie Chini, provost and senior vice president for academic affairs at the University of Maryland University College, um, which has a high number of non-traditional college students and, and um, has a, a long history of serving that population. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's wonderful to be with you. Thanks. A couple of weeks ago, um, we had an article on uh, at Ed Surge here that I wrote about the launch of Mission U, and it garnered a lot of discussion among tech entrepreneurs and among college folks. And in fact, it was actually really interesting for me because <laughs> I, I kind of saw it. It was almost like a Rorschach test watching it, it get talked about on social media uh, with different groups kind of seeing the same article very differently or having different reactions to it. And the, the discussion we're having today actually kind of began on Twitter, um, but it was limited by the 140 character limit. So um, this group was gracious enough to, to agree to come on the Ed Surge podcast today and talk about some of the issues more at, at greater length and dig into some of the, um, the issues raised by, by Mission U and by other higher ed models um, that I think there's a, that we're seeing a lot of these days. So I just wanted to start off, I guess I will give a very, I want to start off with, with Adam, but I will first try to give an incredibly quick summary of this for those who haven't heard of, of Mission U. Um, it's it's a one year program, so it's it's it has you in it, but it's not it's not trying to be an accredited university, and yet it is trying to sort of um, serve as something that a a person might go to instead of a four year college. It's one year only. It's very career focused, 
and it has a another interesting aspect is it's an has an income share agreement where no the students don't pay anything at the very outset, but then once they have a, a job after they've graduated and they've got at least fifty thousand dollars in salary, they are uh, promising to give fifteen percent of their incomes for three years. Um, so in, in some ways in my article, I point out that it sort of rolls into one project, a lot of different, um, experimental approaches to higher ed that, that, that people are talking about on one hand, it's a, a trying to be a, a rapidly scaling lower cost alternative or different model of, of payment. Um, and it's on all online, although the people will be, the students will be co-located in, in one area so they can have some get togethers and, and experiences. And I guess, Adam, I wanted to start with you and ask, what was it that you feel like this is for you um, trying to solve? Why, you know, why come in and, and start this kind of brand new, very different model? Sure. Um, well, you know, first off, thank you, obviously, for, for bringing such a great group together to, to discuss a couple of these topics. I mean, I, I spent the last decade of my life and career really focused on education in both parts of the developing world. I founded the nonprofit organization, Pencils of Promise, and grew that to um, now build uh, just over 400 schools with about 35,000 students in our programs. And as we grew, um, you know, our, our kind of base of support was consistently college students on college campuses. And so I spent a lot of time on, you know, almost every type of college, you know, large state schools, private nonprofits, community colleges, really everything in between. And you know, consistently, I heard from young people that were getting involved in the organization, uh, this kind of request, is there anything that, that you could build that could address some of our needs in, um, you know, domestic higher education here in the States? And, um, you know, things really shifted for me when it became personal. When uh, I met um, the woman that's now my wife, she had over $110,000 of, of student debt uh, without achieving a bachelor's degree. And as I'm sure many of the, the listeners um, to this podcast are familiar with, there's more than 30 million, over 31 million Americans who have some credit without that, that degree. Um, and my wife is one of them. And, you know, when I saw the just absolutely crushing burden that she was carrying uh, by virtue of, of really believing that, um, you know, college was this kind of guaranteed pathway to greater success. And that as somebody who grew up in, you know, a loving family, but without much financial means, um, you know, the, the very thing that was supposed to most enable her to achieve a better future was, was really going to kind of keep her in this, this kind of cage of, of limited potential and possibility throughout the rest of her life. Um, that's when I set out to really understand the space as, as deeply as I could and see, was there an existing institution or entity that I could join? Or was it better for me as an entrepreneur to, to start something from scratch that could perhaps put some new ideas into the space and uh, ultimately try and, um, you know, bring some uh, new ideas that, that other institutions could adopt. Um, and, you know, the more I spoke to people at large institutions, it, 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 you know, tended to be incredibly, not only challenging just because of the size and scale of the institutions and the multiple, you know, decision uh, makers and, and oftentimes some of the bureaucracy that uh, inhibits uh, testing out new ideas, um, but there's also obviously a tremendous amount of uh, requirements once you're uh, playing within the rules of accreditation. And so for for me, it, it really became about trying to build a new pathway for students who might not be served by the traditional system, acknowledging that there are certainly great institutions that provide great opportunities for students, but increasingly students are going to college with the belief that it's a pathway to a better job. And um, many institutions obviously don't see that as their core responsibility. And, and I wanted to build something that, that really did and served that need. So one of the things I wanted to start with was the, in one year, I, in one year, you know, you're, you're sort of definitely 
shortcutting things and something has to be left out when you do one instead of four years. Mm-hmm. And, and from what we've talked about, it seems like one of the things that, you know, there's just not as much of is, is that traditional gen ed kind of liberal arts grounding. Um, it, it, what is the, the rationale with, with kind of leaving that out of, of the, uh, of the mission you model? Sure. Um, you know, part of it is, is the acknowledgement that a lot of the learnings that a person historically was really only able to acquire by attending a traditional four-year college. Um, now they have access to a lot of that content um, and, and uh, really curriculum that's been developed online for free. That, that's one part of the baseline. The second is, again, you know, really meeting the, the student, almost viewing them you know, as um, the, the person who's obviously paying a tremendous amount of money uh, out of pocket, you know, via a loan, whether they realize it or not at, at that young age, um, and, and really meeting their expectations and their requests. And so, you know, while I went through a liberal arts experience, I went to Brown for undergrad, and it was really beneficial for me. Um, you know, I, I also uh, was in a position where my parents both came out of tremendous, you know, kind of poverty in their lives, and were able to enable me to go to a, a four-year college debt. Uh, free and, and graduate and, you know, start to build my career without this enormous burden that now seven and 10 students have. And increasingly now it's, I think over $37,000 on average, you know, today's freshman, it will likely be over $50,000 by the they complete. So, you know, um, in, in my opinion, I mean, if I think back to the four-ish years I spent, you know, on, on Brown's campus, not including, you know, time spent, uh, you know, in, in other types of study abroad program, um, you know, the, the things I can point to that were really tremendously beneficial for me were one, my experiences actually outside of the classroom, interacting with my peer set, you know, the kind of um, those, those really healthy conversations. And I don't think that you need to pay for those via tuition. You can actually have those nowadays um, just with, you know, kind of scaffolded experiences with your peers. And then the second is when I worked on real projects that were connected to, um, you know, real world experiences and eventually led to the entrepreneurial career that I, I started and now, now lead. Um, and so, you know, I think a lot of those liberal arts oriented experiences, um, if you're going to condense uh, the experience into a shorter time frame that is perhaps more cost efficient and less overall costly from a kind of bulk allocation, uh, you know, if a student's saying, I want to learn how to build a better career and get a faster pathway to employment, then those are some of the, the first pieces that I think they can get access to elsewhere. Well, this is where I want to bring in some other guests here. Gardner, um, when this is something that, um, and, and Adam's model is not the only one that kind of has this notion, I think, but it's, it's a very clear example of it. And Gardner, I know you've thought a lot about, you know, the general education, um, preparing students um, and what colleges can do there and what they should do there. What, what are your, what is your reaction to, um, to, to this argument that, that maybe that can be in something picked up later on? Well, thank you, Jeff. I would say that first of all, I would challenge anyone to find a thoughtful liberal learning curriculum that has been carefully structured by experts as a curriculum available for free on the internet. What we do have, are an astonishing and growing number of open educational resources, which I am very glad for. But the specific value that's added within a university setting with a a structured uh, and community-based approach to liberal learning is that you have a much better opportunity, not one that every university provides, but one I think they all should provide, and at their best do provide, for a sense not of mission you, but mission us. We are together 
thinking hard about civilization in all of its many aspects, from history to engineering to, if you can believe it, even poetry, which is what I'm teaching this semester. And the result of that is a synergy that's much greater than the sum of its parts. I think the a la carte, completely self-directed learning approach uh, is a valuable supplement to what you will find uh, to living in community and studying things together in ways that are mediated by experts uh, in uh, those fields. But it's no substitute. And when I read statements like a bachelor's degree no longer makes sense for most people, And I hear that the not making sense is not simply about cost, which I agree is a problem that we need to address, and many schools are addressing. But I hear that, well, everything that is valuable about liberal learning can now be found for free on your own, and you can find your peer group via Snapchat or Facebook and get the learning done that way. That seems to me to be a deliberately reductive argument that ignores the enormous value that liberal learning within colleges and universities contributes uh, to civilization. Seems seems fair to, uh, to to let Adam jump in a little bit here because I think I think there's a you know I think there's a real um, I think you both represent large large groups of, of of people thinking through these issues. Adam, are you worried at all that you know even though you're offering a very you know uh, something that might be achievable to some people that they are are somehow going to miss out on something that um, might keep them so career focused or limit them on later things um, because they're not kind of out of the gate getting this kind of um, broader background to to think through what they want to be when they grow up, really. One thing I would say is is that the statement that a a bachelor's degree no longer makes sense for most people is is heavily rooted in the financial implications uh, around the cost uh, and the debt burden that many of them are are taking on. You know, if if we had a society much like, you know, some of the European countries where every single person had access to a free four-year experience and they were able to pursue that liberal arts education, that sounds like many of us on this podcast, uh, we're able to experience, then, then I would say it does make sense for most people, but that's just not the reality of today. And again, I mean, with, you know, I would say kind of deep empathy, I wish that every single person could experience a four-year bachelor's degree. Um, you know, not every single person really wants that. Uh, a lot of, you know, young people that I've met are incredibly career focused. Uh, they, they want to get to work. Uh, they want to start, you know, that kind of in their eyes contribution to either a company or, or broader society. And they don't feel that they need that, you know, four to six years of kind of coming of age. And I think that for many people, probably, you know, my, myself being uh, the end of, of the kind of age range where that was what, you know, we perceived college to be, um, we're, we're kind of stuck in, in my opinion, not maybe stuck, but we're, we're, you know, many of the parents, and again, I'm a parent as well. We, think of college in our minds as this experience that so many of us were able to, to have because the cost structure was such historically that it was something that you could work your way through or not be absolutely crushed by debt. But that's just not the reality of the cost structure that's in place today. And Mission U really uh, was built in order to you know serve the student, uh, not only today, but in the years ahead with an understanding of the cost implications. Brian, I want to hear your thoughts here. What's at stake? What, how does this fit into the bigger picture? Because this is an audio-only medium, you guys can't hear me nodding at both of you. 
Um, so Gardner's <laughs> comments and Adam's comments, I'm nodding vigorously at both. So you just have to imagine that it's happening. Um, I think the traditional age undergraduate experience is increasingly becoming a niche, and our sense of it as normative is, is rapidly becoming obsolete. The normative student within a few years is going to be an adult learner, probably one supporting family, possibly working uh, part or full-time at the same time. The 18-year-old who leaves home to go and discover themselves and take four years to do so at a residential setting is going to become minority. And so in, in some ways, Adam, looking at your project, um, it is very future-oriented. You're looking ahead for that. Let me, let me come back to the, the finance question, um, and this is one that I think is deeper and more threatening than most describe. It's very possible for us to overstate the student debt burden. Um, the New York Times is very fond of students about the barista with $200,000 debt. Uh, Adam is quite right to have more precise amounts. Um, I mean, the amount owed by American students is between $1.3 and $1.4 trillion. It's the highest of any nation in history. Um, so in that respect, we're number one. Um, the good news is, depending on the research you look at, for a student that completes an undergraduate degree and goes on to have a productive career, they tend to make a lot more money by virtue of doing so than they did from that $30,000 investment. So that what some economists call the college premium is often between $300,000 and $400,000. So if, if you quit high school and go to work, and a parallel dimension, you don't, you, you leave uh, high school, you go to college, that second parallel dimension, you will make up to half a million dollars more in their lifetime. And for that kind of bonus, a $30,000, $37,000 debt is a terrific investment. That's a bargain, in fact. Um, so that's the plus side. Uh, the downside, though, is that that doesn't work for everyone. Uh, it depends a lot on your major. It depends on the kind of career that follows as a result. So if you become a thoracic surgeon or a petroleum engineer, yeah, you've, you've lucked out. Um, that isn't true for everyone, and the data is still uh, kind of iffy. Um, and additionally, there's a problem that women tend to still uh, have a smaller college premium than men do. Uh, on the personal side, uh, I went to uh, my undergraduate experience in the 1980s, and I'm still paying for that. Uh, I went to graduate school in the 1990s, and I'm still paying for that. Uh, I just turned 50. It's possible that my children will inherit parts of my student debt. Um, while I'm working to pay that, I'm also paying for my eldest child's student loan, and my youngest is leaving for university this fall, and so we're getting ready to pay for that as well. It doesn't surprise me, therefore, that when I travel abroad, I have yet to find a single person in any other country who says, you guys have a great system in the U.S. Let's copy that. Um, it's disastrous. It's a humanitarian catastrophe. But what worries me is that neither Gardner nor Adam has outlined a solution. Adam's solution is for one sliver of higher education. Uh, Gardner throws us back on higher education trying to fix itself. I think both of those leave a larger problem unaddressed. Marie, I was uh, definitely want to hear from you as well. And at University of Maryland, University College, <clears throat> you're all about addressing some of these same challenges um, in different ways. Um, do you want to weigh in here about what do you think of, of the mission you, or, or is there a way to to thread the needle so that students can both have something closer to a traditional um, education, uh, higher college education, but not be in this kind of debt we're talking about. 
Yeah, and I'm and I'm also nodding my head at all three of our uh, prior speakers. That there's a lot of either or, and we really should be thinking both and. Um, so we have 85,000 students around the world who are primarily adult students. Some are in the military, many are civilian. Their typical age is 32. And what I can tell you about these students, none of them live in a residential campus. Um, they, most of them have kids. They're also taking care of, you know, parents or other family members. And so for them, while we still, obviously we're a university, we're offering baccalaureate degrees and uh, graduate degrees. But what we know is that we can't just ask our students or even tell them that the smart thing to do is to simply take a four-year degree and then go figure out what you want to do. Um, the, about 40, we, we ask our students all the time what they're interested in, why they're back in college. And um, something like 60% say they are looking for a new career path. 20% um, are looking to move up in their career, their current career. And another 20% are doing it for self-growth. And because they, you know, promised someone uh, in their life that they would finish a degree, it's sort of a step into the middle class. And um, so we end up, you know, trying to to sort of fold all of those together. Of course, we embed the, the liberal arts. But let me say something about liberal arts and gen ed in general. It is only at the most elite, probably small and elite school where you find a very comprehensive well thought out general education curriculum that all students are taking and they might be taking it together and they're thinking about it in small classes with their faculty. What the majority of students are getting in large state institutions, even large private institutions, because it doesn't make a lot of sense to have small gen ed classes, are large lecture halls. Students are given choices across a number of gen ed courses. To think that that is a coherent experience, that all students are walking away with, you know, better thinking and better outcomes, I think is to not really understand and see what goes on in higher ed. Um, in fact, what we are currently in the process of doing is rethinking our general ed courses so that students actually have fewer choices. And each choice that our students have actually have very intentional outcomes built in. So even if it's a course wrapped around art history, that might be a course that we are focusing um, their skills in effective communication or um, perhaps um, some other outcome that we, critical thinking. Uh, but without thinking about it and planning it intentionally, these things just don't happen by osmosis. So that said, I think that all universities have a lot of work to do. And I think I think separating out, um, do students want a job or should we uh, help educate them for a larger world and their community? It's both. And I think we're fooling ourselves if we don't try to do both for our students because that's what they need. We, we all, I mean, think about our jobs. Um, I'm learning every day. I need higher level skills to do my job well. It's not about being narrowly vocational. I think the other thing, though, I'd like to go back to Mission U. What I like about Mission U is that we are, Adam, I congratulate you. We're seeing, I don't know if it'll work or not. I don't know if students will really reap the benefits you want them to or not. I hope they do. But, but we're starting to see brand new ideas about how to help 
groups of students get what they need. And Admission U won't be for every student. We shouldn't even think it would be. Um, my guess would be that if students take, if they go through Mission U, uh, and then they want to move up in a job or they want to learn more, this is the first start of lifelong learning. And, and that's what we have to think about. How, instead of we pack it all in four years and dump you out when you're 22 and then go have a life, we've got to think about these smaller credentials. Uh, pack, you know, modules of education that students are learning about over time. And yes, yeah, some of them will be the liberal arts. Um, and so I, I think we need to just rethink higher education. You know, one of the things that um, I think comes out in both some of the things um, uh, Gardner said, but also like that I'm hearing kind of out there is that, yes, I mean, I think that, I think that it's clear that you're, it's a very well-intentioned project trying to solve a problem, um, that, that we've all kind of, everyone here is, seems to agree of the cost and the, and the trying to, to have different models for different, um, types of students. But I guess the hard question is without accreditation, how do you ensure that this is going to be worth, you know, worth the time that the students are investing and the money later, um, when they're paying it back? And I guess, I guess that's one question for you now, Adam, is like kind of, since you're choosing to forego that accreditation system that the rest of our um, guests have been involved with, what what is the the quality check that that you plan on having um, to to ensure that it's it's you know that it's worth the time and money for the students? Yeah, so I mean, for for us, you know, the um, ultimate accountability is is not at this point to you know a regional or national creditor; it's to employers. Um, so, you know, we start with, uh, employer partners and, you know, I've now had literally hundreds of conversations with either C-level leaders or hiring managers on the front lines of leading companies. And that's really what we're calibrating our curriculum and experience around. So you know, our employer partners are companies like Spotify and Lyft and Orby Parker and Uber and Casper and a whole bunch of others that, you know, primarily right now, I would say live within that kind of high growth, um, you know, kind of technical ecosystem. Uh, that's looking to, you know, fulfill for a lot of uh, really focused uh, competency-based uh, jobs where ultimately if the person can demonstrate the skill, that's a more important measure of whether they're going to get employed than uh, where they have a credential from. And, and that's also today. You know, we've had several, I, I would say probably, I think it's four different colleges just in the week who reached out to explore partnerships with us. And so I wouldn't say that I'm completely opposed to the idea of us becoming a, uh, an accredited institution or in some capacity developing a partnership with a really, you know, forward-thinking and progressive institution that sees that they need a more kind of skills-based and, and career-focused curriculum for their students and where Mission U can perhaps be a partner to that institution. That's something we're certainly open to. Um, but I, I think right now uh, what we're really focused on is understanding the dynamics of the employer marketplace because that's the type of student that we're attracting. And they will possess a series of industry uh, certifications as well as a robust resume and then a public portfolio of work that demonstrates the actual competencies in the fields that they're pursuing. Um, Gardner, I'm wondering this. So th- this is an interesting aspect that very it is very different than Mission, Mission U versus um, traditional higher ed is it's it's closer tie to your corporate partners. And, and from what I've talked to you, Adam, that you're even, you know, letting them have a, a role, inviting them to have a role in kind of what the curriculum should be, um, which is a very much yeah, at sure. odds. Helping, helping to advise. Yep, <laughs> to advise. And creating case studies around some of their real challenges that our students can explore. Now, this is something that in my talks with 
with folks in higher ed has been a concern that 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 kind of a move in that direction is a slippery slope towards something that felt different than traditional higher ed. I, I don't know if Gardner, you want to jump in and, and talk more about that? Sure. I would like to say very quickly in response to some of the things that Marie and Brian have said that I completely agree that many aspects of current higher education uh, are badly in need of repair, uh, refurbishment, and in part replacement. Uh, We do have to think very, very hard about the way in which the ideals of a liberal learning uh, basis for education are ideals that are not realized in the way universities have set up their curricula. Most gen ed curricula, in my experience, are uh, failing along exactly the lines that Marie sets out. But I would say that the failure of an ideal doesn't mean that the ideal is bad or unworkable. So I would want to make that distinction. Let me speak uh, to uh, the question that you've asked, Jeff, which is a very interesting one. So we hear phrases like skills-based, career-focused, the dynamics of uh, marketplace, uh, and so forth. And Obviously, uh, making a living is a very great thing. Obviously, coming out of uh, school with something that uh, somebody would find of value uh, that would help them to create value in their business um, is a very good thing. But I think we need to be very, very careful about what causes what, where are the means, where are the ends, where's the tail, and is it wagging the dog? When I read something like I do on Mission News webpage, curriculum is informed by top companies. And I think, well, what will that curriculum be? Here's how to succeed at Uber. Never mind that the gig economy doesn't work for people as a platform for making a living, getting benefits, or as we've now found out, uh, even being a person with much free will left over. A company like Uber that uses gamification, psychological manipulation strategies to continue to extract value from the particular gig that they've got, uh, somebody driving for them, uh, that's kind of spectacularly backwards from this vision of, no, you'll have a secure job and a good future and you'll have great soft skills. In fact, if you're not careful, you can very easily end up uh, United Airlines because it's all right there and it's all very marketplace driven. It's all very skills based. It's all very career focused and it just isn't humane at all. So I want to be very, very careful about whether the student is is being prepared to create value for the company or whether the university experience is an experience in which the student becomes much more aware of how to create value as part of a shared society. I think that's the goal. I don't think that has to be at the expense of getting a good job, but I think we forget about that part of the goal at uh, at our risk. Adam, do you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, sure. Um, You know, a couple things. One, the idea that Uber using gamification for uh, incentivizing drivers to earn rewards and that they're somehow a terrible actor just by doing that, I think is um, a little bit misleading. I mean, I've heard Bain. And it was an incredible uh, positive experience for me. But Bain, in your third year, whereas a lot of people can go out and make more money in private equity or hedge funds, uh, you know, they offer an externship. And it, and it kind of keeps you around because it's a really appealing experience. Then, you know, uh, you uh, oftentimes go to business school after that. But they'll offer to pay for business school, but only if you come back for two years after that. And so, you know, the experience of kind of that leads you in a direction to, let's call it, you know, uh, 
greater success within the experience of, of your, you know, employment and employer, I, I, I would just say, you know, saying that any person who ends up working for Uber is somehow uh, going down a bad path, I think is very easy to say right now, given the recent PR, but um, I think it's just an, an easy target. And, and I don't think it's frankly all that fair. It's the same thing with United Airlines, uh, as much as I'm a loyalist to Delta. <laughs> now, in terms of, um, you know, some of the, the other statements, uh, I think when you talk to young people who are incredibly career focused and ambitious in that pursuit of landing a great job, especially those who come from more financially disadvantaged backgrounds, um, you know, they, they just view it very differently from um, the way that uh, Gardner has been describing it. And you know, I would just respectfully disagree with, with a lot of the statements that, that were just shared. And again, I, I think the one voice that's really you know, missing from this conversation is that of a student whose family can't pay for college right now. And I think if you, you know, had them on this podcast, what they would be sharing is that, um, you know, they, they don't have the ability to take on that level of debt. And oftentimes they, they think they do because they're going to get a loan from the government. But, you know, even some of the numbers that we've talked about, I mean, you know, $37,000 being the average uh, debt that a, a graduate, um, you know, who's a borrower has, um, you know, the average person takes 21 years to pay back their loans. And on, you know, much like my wife, six and 9% interest rates, you're going to pay back more than double the, the initial amount that you, you borrowed. So, you know, I, I just, I feel like this this conversation is uh, absent of probably the most important voice in the room, which is actually that of the student. And I think the student would feel quite differently from some of those statements in that uh, ultimately, you know, their their desire to end up with, you know, a clear path to their future would outweigh their desire to get this kind of foundational uh, what we often think of as a liberal arts education that I think, you know, Marie so accurately stated is only really achieved at you know, the most elite of institutions. And even then it's not, you know, certainly achieved by all students. And instead we have this kind of uh, rose tinted perception that uh, college in the United States is uh, this place where every single student achieves, you know, the acquisition of values and normative beliefs that are going to guide them throughout the rest of their lives. Whereas a lot of students right now are just struggling to get into the courses that are going to get them through a major because they think that that's their surest way to a job. And at the end of that pathway, they're going to find out that employers actually don't even value the degree from the university that they attended. And now they're in a worse position than where they started. If I might, if I might jump in, what I'm saying at UMUC, we, like, we try to um, innovate and, you know, try things like badges or micro credentials. And you're absolutely right. Um, uh, Employers don't know what to do with them yet, but that's because employers came to that company, the folks at the company came there with their degree in hand, that's how they were hired. That's what they know. That's their currency. Right. I think as we as we work over time, and and there's a difference in sort of generation or gener- generational understanding of what these micro credentials can do, or what other forms of education can do. I think we will see a difference. Uh, and there are many players sort of working on the ecosystem of certificates, badges, micro credentials, whatever you want to call them. Once we have that sort of ecosystem where folks understand and can attest and the uh, skills are assessed and people can demonstrate, that's going to change. And like many things, it's accelerating. There, are, there actually might be a tipping point even before 10 years. Yeah, I mean, when, when millennials become the primarily the primary uh, hire, the, the primary individuals on the front lines of hiring, I think you're going to see a really, really big shift. 
And that, that hasn't happened yet, but in the next five to eight years, we will see that transformation from one generation to the next in terms of who's making up the bulk of the American workforce. Sorry, just a very, very quick question for Adam. Um, uh, if this were parliamentary procedure, I'd say it was a point of clarification. Um, <laughs> what proportion of the student body do you think is well-suited for the Mission U experience? 10%, 90%? So uh, Parthenon Group did a really interesting survey, uh, excuse me, study really on, on motivations of students. And uh, the that we believe applies to the type of program that we're building and would most benefit from it is about 18%. And that, those are the subgroups that they call career starters. So these are different from, you know, the academic wanderers, the coming of age students, the uh, mid-career resetters. So I would simply say I'm sure that's a, a, a valuable target to go after. Uh, your company's PR uh, says no longer makes sense for most people, and most would have to be a lot higher than that. And what I would ask you is what do you propose higher education should do if we don't have Mission U available for everyone, and your website makes it clear that actually you're making uh, pretty high admission standards, you're promising companies the top graduates and so forth. So it's hardly what I would call an egalitarian experiment in higher ed for all. Um, what do you think we should do with the recent immigrants? What do you think we should do with the first generation students, the ones who aren't career starters? But the ones who are trying to get, at, you know, at, at, at bottom, uh, some kind of a handle on what the world is and what their place in that world might be. You know, my, my hope is that Mission U is an individual data point, but that as it starts to scale and grow, it uh, hopefully inspires others to build similar institutions and you know, companies and organizations that use some of the parts of our model and, and scale those up that ultimately, you know, to, to broadly serve the masses that you're describing there, I think we need really, really large uh, and advocacy changes that usually, you know, come from, I think right now, obviously at the state level, what we saw just in um, New York is, is a really great step in the right direction. In San Francisco, where I'm based, they've made community college free uh, for local residents, obviously with certain, um, you know, criteria in mind. But I think that we you know, need major change at the policy level uh, that can hopefully point to some of the uh, innovations that are being tested either within the system at some of the institutions that you all uh, represent, as well as some of the, uh, you know, kind of more startup oriented companies like a mission U that we can demonstrate that there's efficacy in some of these ideas, and then they can be adopted at the policy level. Well, there, there may be some points of agreement here. I'd just like to speak to very quickly uh, since there are obviously many points of disagreement, but I, I do think uh, getting to the solution is going to necessitate a real rethinking of the funding structures for education. Uh, people say that there's never going to be an increase in public funding again, but unfortunately, the privatization of funding uh, by means of these student loans has dug us into a very deep hole. So I would love to see the kind of return to reasonable public funding levels that would give us uh, at least a, a chance at some kind of level playing field. And I also think, and I would love to know what plans you might have for this uh, at scale, that higher ed has not been very good at building more value into the networks of students themselves. 
part of that's because we haven't really explored the open web in any uh, significant way, in my view. We're pretty good at hustling people into classes and courses, but we're not very good at getting students to see each other as colleagues. And I would love to hear what mm -hmm. you have to say about that. Yeah, I mean, our, our program is actually heavily structured around near-peer learning. And so, you know, you have instruction via industry practitioners and through seminars at the start of most mornings. But uh, the majority of the student experience is actually through project-based near-peer assignments. And so, you know, it's, it's something that I'm obviously, a, you know, very, very big proponent of. And uh, like, you know, you just stated, I'm also uh, hopeful that, we can start to course correct around, uh, you know, funding allocations, in particular at the state, and obviously as well at the federal. But given the trends at the state level, there needs to be some type of course correction there. Otherwise, we won't ultimately, you know, achieve the higher education system that I think all of us are battling for. To me, it's it's very interesting. I think some of the, I, I feel like there is a, a bit of a uh, culture difference that that I hear often in my reporting at Itzurge, which is. You know, different perspectives um, of people that have that are in the the higher ed sort of um, on a campus, and then those like Adam. I think you represent this kind of entrepreneur coming in and and having uh, coming in in a different um, uh, you know working in a corporation and thinking and having a different background. Um, so I guess in some ways it feels like there's a mistrust on both sides sometimes. Not necessarily with the group here, but um, but I, I wonder if either if, if anyone here as a final note has any ideas for how to have more of a dialogue Adam I thought it was interesting that you said you might be working with a few colleges at some point but do you how do you how does there get to be more of a dialogue so that it doesn't feel like that, that one side's coming in to sort of erase the other one somehow or, or kind of compete with the other one in a zero-sum game yeah I mean in my opinion it's it's through the power of convening and so you know it's Folks like you all at EdSurge are able to recognize that there's there's two different kind of perspectives, and that if they don't start to have a dialogue with one another, and you know maybe on the outset, I think some people would look at this conversation and say, oh, they're just gonna you know yell and scream and disagree the whole time. But you know, probably more than half of this conversation has actually been around shared agreement. And I, I think it's really about just getting people ideally in a room or a, a phone call or in you know perhaps a Skype chat together. And recognizing that we're all working towards the same goals, we have different sets of formative um, experiences that that create the lens on which we see a path to success. But uh, I think the more time that we can get, uh, you know, with one another, the, the more that we can find pathways to, to share to mutual success. I would agree. I was going to say EdSurge does a, a big part of this. We need more uh, organizations that bring different groups together. I, I've been starting to say to people, just very out there, higher ed by itself can't really move forward very easily. We have to figure out how to work with uh, vendors, with folks who are running other models, and still keep our core, still keep what is very important to us at our own institution, but we will not be able to go it alone. I mean, we've outsourced bookstores in the past, we've outsourced residence halls to an extent, so now we have to start thinking about what are some of the other pieces that perhaps we can partner not outsource, but partner with others to do. And um, so I think those conversations are starting to happen, but, but I think all of us have to think like that now. I would add that I would implore all of us in this conversation, which has established a number of points of, an, of agreement, to back away, if we can, from a marketing-fueled race to the bottom. 
I have to say, Adam, with respect, that when I go to the website, permissionview.com, what I don't get is a very measured or very thoughtful uh, message coming back at me. What I get is something that says, this is the best, buy this thing, and then markets on top of that. Now, I want to add very quickly that I don't have any university websites that I would feel very comfortable putting up and saying, well, here's the way to do it well. I think that there has been, and this is in part because of a business-oriented focus we've all adopted, an effort to move away from a, a clear and heartfelt statement of value towards branding and eyeballs and getting that big you know, tentpole in place so that people go, wow. I understand that the state needs sizzle, but I regret a marketing-fueled race to the bottom. Um, I, this is Brian. Uh, I would just add a couple of points. One is um, I agree with Adam about uh, the function of having students be part of these discussions. Uh, that's why I evoked my own two children, um, and I think that's essential uh, for any of these conversations to have. I think it's a kind of missing fulcrum for any of these conversations. Uh, a second is uh, on the glass uh, half-empty side, uh, I think it's actually more difficult to have these conversations than it used to be. Um, we have, um, in the United States, we have uh, a very, very challenging political environment, extremely polarized, uh, very fraught, if not actively dangerous. Uh, and that doesn't make any conversation easier to have. On top of that, uh, many, many states, if we're speaking of public education, uh, many state governments are facing enormous and growing competition for resources far beyond higher education, uh, especially for repairing a brutally neglected infrastructure, uh, for caring for an aging population, especially in the Midwest and the Northeast. And so for a lot of state governments uh, already racked by hard politics, they're going to find it harder and harder to come up with plans like the one that New York State's governor just uh, issued. On the glass half-full side, though, I have to say that um, this conversation happened through the power of convening, but also happened through social media, uh, through our discussions over Twitter, through uh, Jeff's really excellent article that was shared through social media. And I think the technology gives us uh, new avenues, not only for fighting with each other, but also to find common grounds of agreement and to move forward. Thank you all for joining us today. And, and obviously, there's plenty more to say. Um, so this is to be continued, and we'll look for hearing more from people on social media and continuing this conversation in the future. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. You've been listening to the Ed Surge On Air podcast. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. And apologies for some glitchy sound there. Uh, we recorded this call, and the system I used didn't work as well as I'd hoped. Now's the part where I remind you to subscribe. We're on all the podcast apps, and, and you can give us a grade in iTunes or send suggestions or ideas for future guests to feedback at edsurge.com. We'll be back next week with more conversations about the future of education. Thanks for listening.